The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV podcast. I'm Gazella Mami, Vulture's TV editor, and I'm here with our TV columnist Margaret Lyons and TV critic Matt Zoller Seitz. How are you guys doing? Pretty good. Great. Tell me, what was your favorite TV moment last week? I had a couple, but I'm going to go with the season finale of The Fosters. There's a moment where Jude, who's like a tween, he comes out to his older sister in this like very casual but very charming way. The story with Jude for a long time has been sort of he's trying to put together like his identity and his gender identity and sexual identity and his adoptive moms are very supportive and saying you, know, you don't have to decide everything like just be yourself and you know take what comes like that's okay and um he says sort of off the cuff to his sister he's like no 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 Connor's not my friend Connor's my boyfriend and it's just like been like a storyline that had a lot of really fraught moments so far mm-hmm. this season and it was really sweet to just sort of see it come to that kind of resolution I love that show it's hard to choose, but they're all from uh, the episode of Better Call Saul where Jimmy McGill tries to mount a class action suit against this nursing home. And uh, probably it would be between the moment when he climbs out of the dumpster where he's been trying to find some documents that have been shredded and uh, sees a recycling bin next to it and realizes he didn't have to go in the dumpster in the first place. <laughs> or in the moment the right before they're about to meet with opposing counsel, he kneels down and ties his brother's shoe, which is just a lovely moment. So for me, I am going to go with the season finale of The Mindy Project. I really like how the show handles its relationship dynamic. And there's a moment with Mindy and Danny where they're talking about whether they want to get married. And Danny doesn't and Mindy does. And I'm always struck by how well she handles these dramatic moments. And I don't think Mindy Kaling gets enough credit for that. So She's a really good actress. Yeah, she's really good. When she tears up, I tear up immediately. <laughs> yeah, you feel whatever yeah. whatever her character is feeling, you feel it mm-hmm. too, even when she's hiding it from the other characters, which is terrific. I also think every week we all think of the Americans as being our favorite TV oh, right. moment, and we just kind of <laughs> that's just it You can assume week. that. But that was pretty good this week, too. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That was um, pretty intense. Yeah. I love yeah. a good Carrie Russell stare. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just like, ooh, yeah. chilling. We're going to start off talking about our favorite episodes of Mad Men through the years in the run-up to the April 5th premiere. And then we'll look at the full season of Netflix's new series, Bloodline, starring Kyle Chandler and a lot of other people you know. At the end, we'll answer some questions from you, our listeners, as well. If you have any questions for us, please email us at tvquestions@vulture.com. So we're going to be talking about Mad Men a lot over the next couple months probably every week. And before we dive into the new season, we thought we'd revisit some of what we consider the best episodes ever. Um, So we're going to start off with an episode from season two. It's episode five, and it's called The New Girl. Margaret, would you like to tell us a little bit about what happens in this Sure, that's the episode where Don and Bobby Barrett, we sort of start digging into their affair, and they get really drunk and decide to drive to the beach, and they have a car accident, and... um, and Peggy has to come bail Don out of jail. And then we get these flashbacks to when Peggy placed her child for adoption and she's in the hospital. And we learn that Don is the one who visited her. And we sort of get these intense moments between Peggy and Don and between Peggy and Bobby and between Bobby and Don. And it sort of is this really intense kind of fleshing out of 
what kind of baggage everyone's carrying mm-hmm. with them in this episode. So we're going to play a clip now of Don and Bobby in the car on their way to the beach. Why is it so hard to just enjoy things? God, I feel so good. I don't feel a thing. So this is what Don says right before they crash. Margaret, you've written about accidents happening in vehicles on this show before. (laughs) (laughs) What What do you make of this scene? So, I mean... Part of what this whole episode is about is how you learn how to forget stuff. And this is the episode where Don says to Peggy, you won't believe how much this never happened. And he's telling her to, like, give up her child and just move on and and block it out for forever. And at various points, we hear Bobby explain that, like, if it weren't for me, instead of Grin and Barrett, this would be Grin and Brownstein. And, like, I learned to negotiate. And it's America. Pick who you want to be and then just be that. And all of these ways that a lot of the characters sort of chose a different life for themselves and just moved on. Except we all know that you can't really do that. And so Don claims to have moved on, but we know that, of course, he's deeply troubled by the past that he's like, yeah. continuing to re-experience. And, you know, his whole spiel of, like, you won't believe how much this never happened. It's like, you would believe how much it still is happening over and over, right? Like, we can't actually just give these things up. So in terms of the car crash, we sort of, it's pretty obvious that, like, modes of transportation inspire moments of transition. And, you know, Mad Men has a lot of car crashes, including a couple others in season two. It's this moment where That's sort of Don's major problem, right, is that he doesn't feel a thing. And so that's why he continues to put himself in sort of risky situations because he's himself is very numb and has a very hard time caring what other people's feelings are or guessing what those feelings might be or validating when someone tells him how they feel. So his whole I don't feel a thing, that kind of is his like fatal flaw for a lot of what happens in season two. It's not his fatal flaw for the whole series, but in season two, he's trying to come to terms with learning how to feel a thing, right? So this is before... Betty finds his shoebox of secrets. This is before, you know, he has to sort of come clean to Betty about his whole past. And so in this moment, he thinks it's a carefree thing to say, right? Like he thinks this is like a charming or like a bad boy kind of moment. And it's actually like, oh, wow, your heart is so empty. Because he says to Peggy at the end of the episode, um, I guess if you try to forget something, you wind up forgetting everything. And, And that kind of is the problem, right? I think anyone who's ever experienced like denial while in a state of grief it sort of blacks out everything else Mm -hmm. around it and it becomes this kind of supernova where it burns very bright but it doesn't last and so you kind of Mm -hmm. have this period of time where nothing gets in and and the only feeling you have is like denial 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 and then it it eventually implodes and suddenly everything that you were putting off experiencing and putting off feeling you get in an incredibly dense dying star capacity like Mm -hmm. eating you from the inside it also really sets up one of the strongest similarities between don and peggy throughout the series, which is their ability to keep a secret Mm -hmm. and to, like, be comfortable with their own secret. And Peggy says, like, I don't want you to think less of me when you associate me with this car crash. Like, when you look at me, right? Because Peggy comes Peggy comes and bails him out. She Yeah, she comes to the hospital. Don basically can't call on anyone else. And it's like a crappy police station. Mm-hmm. And she, oh, Don right. needs $150 in cash. Yeah. And he, it's the middle of the night. And he calls Peggy. And she can only get together $110 from like her brother-in-law and stuff. <laughs> and it's a lot of money to her, which yeah. is funny because in later episodes, we see that Roger frequently carries around like $500 in cash all the <laughs> yeah. time. So we learn that Peggy and Don both have these like sort of life-altering secrets and Pete winds up being the only other person who really knows their two secrets, um, mm. which is sort of like a weird That's nexus for both of them. That like Pete of all Cretans <laughs> is like this sort of, and he's actually a good secret keeper. <laughs> well, he has their secrets. Yeah. Like they both, he knows their secrets, and their secrets involve sort of his silence at some level. 
Peggy and Don both just decided to have different lives. And we see Peggy be a lot more comfortable with that decision. And I think Don be a lot more haunted by that decision. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I was thinking about this. I agree with everything you say, but there's one thing I would add to it, which is I often feel like when people on on that show say things like what Don said, I always feel like I should bet the other way. They're sort of loudly proclaiming what they believe to be true or what they think they actually are all about, and a lot of times it's a lie. Oh, sure. They're you know, lying like, to and that's that's what's so fascinating to me about that show, and that's why I think it gets human psychology better than almost any other drama that I've seen because. Nobody is ever one way or the other way exclusively, and and they're constantly uh, trying to find the truth while lying to themselves. They think they're moving forward, making progress, but they're actually running in place. They think they're striking out on a new path, but they're just repeating old patterns, sometimes old generational patterns, societal patterns. And this lyric, a Sondheim lyric, pops into my head, sorry, grateful, regretful, happy. Yeah. You know, the idea that the two, these two thoughts or these two feelings can coexist and do coexist. It's lovely. Right. I also, upon rewatching season two, I feel like when I watched it the first time, Bobby Barrett was this like very sort of villainous character in a lot of ways. Um, and on rewatching it and sort of thinking about mm-hmm. contextualizing her among Don's many affairs, now I'm very pro Bobby. Like, I think Bobby's like dope as <laughs> right. Team um, Bobby. But what's interesting, I one of my pet theories that basically, obviously, like Don is always seeing himself reflected back in the women that he's involved with and the thing that's getting reflected back and he denies it constantly bobby talks about how much she loves negotiating and don says that's boring and we know don loves negotiating and she says you have to be very careful because you're telling someone that they're not worth what they think and it's very touchy and he's like yeah whatever and it's like we have seen like (laughs) not whatever that's like the backbone of don's life is telling people that they're not worth what they think and we see him like literally throw money at people like and getting his back up when people refuse his offers yeah he takes that personally so he you know we know that don does love negotiating and bobby's like it's hand-to-hand combat you know if you can't get excited about this what can you get excited about and don is like so full of shit being like nah, I don't care <laughs> meanwhile that's also when they bump into Rachel Menken this is like such a good oh, episode right. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they bump into Rachel Menken and she's like oh now I'm Mrs. Katz and she's with her husband and that's another person who sort of chose that life right we know that Rachel was sort of conflicted she had like very strong feelings for Don and she talked about it a lot with her sister in season one and we sort of see that she like decided you know what like this life is bullshit and like Don's full of shit and he doesn't want to run away with me he just wants to run away right, right. and so she cut she that's picked, a great line that's a great line and yeah. it's a I mean, I think anyone who's ever dated has experienced somebody who maybe just wanted to run away. Like mm-hmm. that idea of like he this, only likes the beginning of things. I think Dr. Faye, Faye tells says him that, that. yeah, right. when he gets engaged to Megan. I hope she knows that you only like the beginning of things. That's a great line. That is a great line. People say good stuff on this show, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we see that Rachel sort of chose this life. She wanted to be Mrs. Katz. You know, she wanted to be, go to the theater and have this like nice Jewish stable husband and she found him and she picked him and that's not the choice John would have made for himself and it's not the choice I think he wanted her to make for them but he doesn't get to make everyone's choices for them which I think rankles him. Do you find that the the show do you do you get more out of it upon multiple viewings? Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean of course right? Like, right. I think Mad Men does a very good job of balancing story and texture I find often mm-hmm. the plot is very propulsive and you do kind of just, what happens next, right? But it's not like a cliffhanger-driven show. So, you know, watching an episode like Commissions and Fees, right, where mm-hmm. this is the episode where Lane kills himself, you sort of mm-hmm. know that that's coming, right? And so you're you're watching it and you're sort of filling with dread and, and the first time you watch it, like, that's sort of the dominant experience right. is, like, this dread and, and this, like, agony and sadness because, like, I loved Lane. I thought that was a great character. Mm-hmm. I think that was, like, a correct arc. I didn't feel cheap or unearned at all. But it's sad. 
You know, I was like in mourning. And when you go back and watch it again, you 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 want to smack yourself for not seeing it coming. <laughs> because right. I mean, that particular not just that something bad is going to happen, which duh, everybody kind of felt because there was this undertone of dread to all of season five, but that specific outcome. Right. For Vulture, me and my friend Kevin Lee did an entire video just showing you all the foreshadowing, some of which you never could have imagined was foreshadowing. Right. You know, it's and the show is great at that. It has text, it has subtext, it has foreshadowing, it has callbacks, but they're on two layers. Like, they're the obvious ones that you get the first time, and then there's the secondary layer of little things, like a gesture that's similar to a gesture that happened three seasons earlier, sure. or the different character whose situation is somehow connected to the one you're watching. Anyway, it's a great show. I mean, I don't think you could possibly <laughs> get everything on a first viewing right. for that show. Yeah. I couldn't. On that note, we have another episode that's full of things to glean upon repeated viewings. It's from season three. It's episode four called The Arrangements. And this is an episode where parents, grandparents, and children are all interacting. Matt, you wrote a piece about this episode last week. <laughs> I, wrote, really, I practically wrote a novel yeah, about this, it, this episode. It's an amazing article if anyone is interested. It's, it's an amazing episode. And I'm not going to try to discuss every aspect of it because we would be here all week. But we are but, all going to sing the patio song together, right? We, I hope so, yes. <laughs> well, why don't we play a, a clip of it first sure. and then lead Absolutely. into the discussion. So this is a clip where Betty is telling her dad that she does not want to talk about his will with him. You don't want to hear about it, Scarlet O'Hara. I have the folder. Yeah, you've always been sensitive. That's my fault for shielding you from all the dangers out there. That's probably why you married this joker. If you'd even known what was possible. But that's that. I wrote it down. We never have to talk about it again. I don't understand why you like talking about this when you can see so clearly that it upsets me. Selfish and morbid. I'm your little girl. And I know it must be horrible to be looking at whatever you're looking at. But can't you keep it to yourself? So Matt, in your piece you deal with this idea of the anxiety of influence. Can you talk about that and how it plays into... Yeah, it's 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 very complicated and like a lot of things on Mad Men, it's playing out on five different layers of scaffolding to the writing of that. And you see it reflected in parents, grandparents and grandchildren. Grandpa Gene interacting with Sally and uh, Don and Betty both interacting with Gene. Don thinking about his own relationship with his dad and his stepmother, which he denied and ran away from. There's Peggy trying to prepare her mother for the fact that she's going to move out and try to start her own life. Her mother uh, rebelling at this television that Peggy gives her. And then you've got this client from hell. Uh, well, really, actually not. He's kind of a marshmallow. He just wants to <laughs> dump a bunch of money. They call him the fatted calf to make high ally a sport. And then uh, he's doing it to separate himself from his father, who, which is the source of that money. Yet the end goal for him is to present his father with the gift of a winning high ally team after making that sport a sensation in the United States. So, you know, we go back to this sorry, grateful, regretful, happy kind of concept where they're trying to escape from their parents and yet they're still chained to their parents psychically. They're trying to separate from them and forge their own identity. But in the end, a lot of it's about winning their parents' approval. And then within that, there are these beautiful little character sketches, these moments between people these portraits of individual psychologies and psychologies in conflict with and in conversation with each other. And one of my favorites is the scene where Gene is talking to Sally and he essentially tells her in so many words, you can be whatever you want to be. 
like, you mm-hmm. know, which is exactly what any child wants to hear, but particularly a little girl in that era where the roles were so rigidly circumscribed. And yet, Jean is somebody who can turn around and just fill this girl's ears with toxin, like just poisoning her against her mother, which is something he doesn't want to do because he loves Betty. But you see that he's trying to kind of do a better job as a parent through this grandchild, which a lot of grandparents do. It's like a do-over. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of them joke, you know, it's a lot of most of the fun and not as much of the responsibility. Mm-hmm. But he's one of the most realistic grandparents he's ever seen on screen. And this idea of denying death is something that runs throughout Mad Men. And we see it in that clip that you just played. But also, of course, at the end of it, where we see that Betty's reaction to the discussion of the will and the funeral, to just get up and practically plug her ears and walk away going, la, 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 <laughs> la. It's reflected in the way that she delivers the news to Sally. She waits till the end of the school day, and then she makes her wait even more. And she just can't process this. She can't deal with it. She's short-circuited in some way. But what really jumped out at me more than anything else about this episode is this is not one of those episodes that you think of as a quote-unquote big episode of Mad Men. It's not like, you know, major character dies, uh, they start a new agency or something like that. It's just sort of an ordinary ebb and flow of life kind of episode. And yet there's enough characterization, enough detail, enough symbolism, enough subtext in this episode that you could devote an entire podcast to it, which we're in danger of doing (laughs) if I don't stop. I mean, this episode, (laughs) in addition to all those things, I feel like this episode in particular winds up being about destruction, right? So we start off with the Pope dying, and not everyone on the show is Catholic, but it's a really big deal to Peggy's mom. Then we have the ant farm gets Mm -hmm. shattered because they're, mm-hmm. they're playing high lie in the office and no one knows how to do that. So it shatters this ant farm. We have Grandpa Jean's death. We also have the book that Sally was reading to him is about... Decline of the, the, Ro- yeah. the fall of the Roman right. Empire. Right, so of, we have all... Of all things. <laughs> so we have like all these ideas about like everything kind of falling apart and crumbling. The, the and we bye-bye birdie. So uh, we have... Right, so then mm-hmm. we have patio, which is itself a diet soda, like a sort of sham of a drink, right? And then we yeah. have this presentation of... And it is like an incredibly moment-by-moment moment accurate recreation of the opening of Bye Bye Birdie with Anne Margaret. And we have Roger say, well, it's not Anne Margaret, right? So we have this sort right. of like, things are like rotting from the inside. And we have this amazing scene. One of my favorite scenes on the whole show is when Sal sings to Kitty. He like sort of performs what the commercial is going to look like. And I think it's an amazing moment from Sarah Drew sort of like watching this yeah. sort of wash over her as she's realizing, oh, my husband is gay. And it's yeah. not my fault that he doesn't, that he's not attracted to me. And then like, oh, my God, what am I going to do now? And how do I tell him that I know? Like, can I tell him? Does he know? You know, you sort of just like watch. Also, those wonderful flickers in her eyes where it's Mm -hmm. like, am I seeing what I think I'm seeing? Like, there's a doubt there, which makes it more it makes it more than just a cheap epiphany. No, it's not. It's like she's struggling. You see her brain like being twisted up. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so we just and the rest of the season winds up having a lot to do with the decline of society and sort of everything yeah. eventually falling apart. Um, and we're and the younger really... generation trying to deliberately shatter the old way like yeah. that ant farm. Yeah. Or accidentally in that case. I think it sort of speaks to like how well Mad Men plays with very serious and very sort of like poppy and funny moments. We see Joan hold like a handkerchief over her face and she starts spraying the ant farm. Yeah. And that's when the music for Patio starts. Like, so we're like, ba da 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 right? Mm-hmm. And it's like this really jokey thing. And instead of like sort of digging into the real sadness and like horror of the episode because I think we also see Sally watching a TV segment about a monk who was self-immolated. Which, which, was, to... which was the first inkling that the Vietnam War was not going right. as our leaders had told us it was. <laughs> right. <And> so <laughs> so we there's see, more parental disillusionment. So we know that like Sally is very obsessed with death. We see again in the car she gets to drive to school for with Grandpa Jean. He yeah. drives. She he lets her drive and right. is like, "Shut up, Bobby." <laughs> like yeah. maybe get this like real moment of like, "Oh right, 
no one on the show is that good at loving each other. And, <laughs> because, and like you should be loving right, Bobby at all. Like, <laughs> yes. And the monk and the monk moment, of course, you know, you can you can even tie that back into these national historical kind of ideas where that's that's patriarchal authority handed down from World War II, which we won saying things are going fine in Vietnam, and we look at the television, there's a monk burning himself, and that was the first inkling that a lot of Americans had, that, that we were being lied to, or that maybe we weren't getting the whole story. And that ties in with Gene showing, the giving Bobby yeah. the Prussian army helmet and telling him war is going to make a man out of you, and Don struggling to, uh, do I cut in here? Do I respond? Do I not respond? And he says, take that off. That belong- what it is, That's a dead man's that's hat. That's a dead man's mm-hmm. hat, yeah. But what's weird is war literally made the man Don is because he started out as... Dick Whitman in that war. He came home from that war as the <laughs> yes. man he is. Mm-hmm. That's right? right. And so I think sort of the ideas of like what having served in a war like does to people comes up. It's not a major theme on the show, but there mm-hmm. are like flickers of it. We see it from Roger. We see it from Grandpa Gene. We see it from Don. And those are people who have like very different sort of baggage and ideas about it. But then in season one, Peggy says to Joan, you know, like, I'm the first female copywriter since the war. Right. So like these are people right. for whom right. the idea of America at war is a lifelong presence. This is like a big, very relevant, Mm -hmm. very entwined part of the way they experience everything. And I think for Sally to sort of have these people telling her like what it's supposed to mean. And then eventually we meet Miss Farrell and she has a different take on what it means. And we sort of watch Sally try to metabolize those ideas and realize that the people older than her are doing a really bad job. Yes. (laughs) We We could obviously talk about every episode of Mad at Lake. We could. (laughs) (laughs) So we want to talk a little bit about Netflix's new family drama slash thriller Bloodline, which was created by the people who brought us damages, Glenn and Todd Kessler and Daniel Zellman, who go by KZK, I believe. And it stars Kyle Chandler, Linda Cardellini, Sissy Spacek, Chloe Sevigny, just this all-star, all-star cast, guys. <laughs> um, so expectations were pretty high for this. The gist of it is it's this family. They live in the Florida Keys. They look good on the outside. They have a lot of problems because of their black sheep brother, Danny, who we find out at the end of the first episode has been murdered by his siblings somehow, which we spend the rest of the season finding out. The reviews have been kind of strangely mixed on this one. Some people call it a gripping drama. Others think it's really boring. Why do you think that is? And what did you think about it, Margaret and Matt? I thought it was really boring. And everyone <laughs> thinks it's a gripping drama is wrong. I mean, it just it didn't grip me. I don't know. I love the actors, and it's great to look at and listen to. I mean, I love the music. I love the photography. I love all of these performers. I just think they're great. And there's some moments in it that are lovely. I think that... The moment between Ben Mendelsohn and Chloe Sevigny at the pool table is just a beautiful little one-off scene, and there's a lot of those in there. But I question why it needed to be this many episodes, and I, 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 I don't know. It just a lot of it felt like giant in the Florida Keys, but it was, you know, 13 hours long instead of three. I mean, I thought all the performances were solid, certainly, and I think Ben Mendelsohn was great, like, you know, really giving that like low life like maybe like marginally reformed junkie he was like oh wow that guy looks like he's been in hard times right the, the, like, way, oh. the way he delivers that line uh, to his brother why do you think I'm always in trouble yeah is perfect right perfect. but like that said like everyone was exactly how they seemed there was no depth to it for me I also felt like the dialogue is just not good enough like a lot of the moments that were spoken could have been acted so it's, for example it's not on the level of the filmmaking like, if you have two characters who know each other very well like siblings right <laughs> and so we have four siblings on the show three <laughs> of whom I think we're supposed to believe are pretty close to each other and one of them says what do you mean 
And the other one looks at him and says, you know what I mean. It's like, why don't we act that moment, right? Yes. Because like, <laughs> like, I think we can get that you know what I mean across in I wish in you were look. standing off camera so you could actually say right. that. <laughs> Hold up. I'm very close to my siblings. And, you know, I hate when sibling characters on a show don't seem alike, right? So like, my preference is for them to look alike just because I find that charming. But you need to act alike because that's like how we can tell you're not co-workers, right? Cool. So the way that you act with your siblings, one thing mm-hmm. to me that really cues sibling is a shared language. And like, you know, it doesn't have to be Nell speak, but when you communicate with your siblings, there is like a shorthand. <laughs> that's and a like deep a, cut. It's not that deep. What else is about? <laughs> That's like right on the money to me. Like, I haven't thought but, about it in years. But oh. so we want these moments that show like these people know, like, you know what I mean, right? Like, I don't like we can sort of see each other and acknowledge our shared experience. And whether that's through inside jokes or like specific terms that only your family uses for certain things. Right. Like there was no moments like that that made anything feel real to me at all. The biggest truth in the show was that like man that junkie brother is a real shithead right and i was like yeah. yeah he is and then everything on the show was like yep he is it's like oh was he to his friends like oh he's a shithead to them too it's like okay right. so everyone like he seems like a shithead he acts like a shithead he's a shithead the end like that's not enough that's not a story the the thing that held me uh sort of was <laughs> was this idea that kyle chandler ostensibly the good brother is is really even more dark and messed up than his junkie brother. But I don't feel like they deliver on that and it takes too long to he get He was there. he's not more messed up though, right? And he even says in like the opening moments like we did a bad thing or whatever. We're oh, not bad I people, hate that but we did line. a bad thing it's, and it's like, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> message received. And then we continue to receive that message like five or six times every episode for 13 episodes. Are there any like slow burn dramas you would recommend to listeners if they're looking for something with that kind of pacing but that actually maybe pays off? There's a limit to what you can get to in 13 episodes, and that limit is more when you have 26. We spend more time with these people the same way that if you know someone for 10 days, you don't know them as well as you did for 10 years, even if those were really intense 10 days, said everyone who ever had a camp boyfriend. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Like, I mean, some of it is just a matter of time. Obviously, I think Mad Men, I would tell anyone to watch Mad Men if you haven't watched Mad Men. I think, you know, Deadwood is another show I think we both recommend a lot. Well, guys, let's take some listener questions now, shall we? We have a question from John this week. I feel like every time award season rolls around, I'm always disappointed with the TV nominations. I never see my favorite actors and actresses get nominated who I personally think should. Mindy Kaling, TV shows like Parks and Rec and Broad City getting snubbed. Do certain TV shows or actors just automatically get nominated because of their name? It was great to see Jane the Virgin, for example, win at the Globes this past year, but I don't know if I can handle watching award shows with Modern Family still reigning supreme with nominations. What do you guys think? What's the problem here? <laughs> I mean, I'm like far be it for me to tell you to care less about certain things because that's not really usually my jam. But don't put too much stock in award shows, John. Like that would be my number one recommendation. That's just not how they have ever or will ever really operate. The Emmys are particularly bad in this respect versus the Oscars, say. Yeah, just because of the sheer number of awards that that have to be handed out and the number of categories that they cover, uh, there's a tendency to 
give awards to shows that have won awards that are known as award-winning shows. And it's a pretty open secret that a lot of people mark their ballots not having seen a lot of these shows. Sure. Mm. You know, and they are voting on name recognition a lot of the time. And there's a reason why Frasier won Best Comedy year after year after year after year after year after year, and that's why Modern Family keeps doing the same thing. And it's not a slam. Frasier is much better than it Modern is, Family. It is, but my point is it's not, <laughs> same it's, problem, it's not that every single year Frasier was the best sitcom. It sure. was because it had this winning aura around it that, yes. that carried it aloft to the stage again. And it gets frustrating, even if you love Frasier, which I did. And and I think uh, The West Wing had a little touch of that for a while. Yeah. I mean, and, awards are deeply inert, right? So the more you win, the more likely you are to keep winning. The more you lose, the more likely you are to keep losing, yeah. right? That has like that real inertia of whichever way you're going is where you're going to keep going. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the Golden Globes is like such a weird crapshoot. <laughs> That's like a random selection of like 96 sort of like that's just, just like 96 <laughs> people um i like their taste better than i like the taste of the fun. indian oscar voters it's honestly it's more fun it's more interesting it's, it's more exciting. surprising they're yeah, much better at true. scouting out people and shows and movies that are kind of out of nowhere cinderella stories yeah they no, don't I get mean, credit for that everybody <laughs> makes fun of the golden globes membership you know who are they what are their qualifications well, we but, have a story on vulture that goes through every member of the golden globes <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> voting poll if you're curious just look at look at their track record they, they've given awards to some great stuff, and they're often way ahead of the curve. Whereas, I mean, they've also given you know, awards to, like, a bunch of dumb crap, just oh, like they, everybody they else. they absolutely have. <laughs> like, but but <laughs> any any show that, that honors Michael Chiklis for The Shield oh, sure. before anybody else gets around yeah. to it, is uh, or, there's something I mean, to be said for did that. Did anyone else even ever get around to it? No. Right, yeah. So, I mean, there are plenty of shows that... I mean, oh, The Shield, that's a slow burn show for you guys. Watch The Shield <laughs> and then, like, prepare yourself a cake for afterwards because you, like, need something. That finale will ruin you. Oh, I could talk about The Shield forever. But, yeah, I mean, no, I I don't... The Emmys are not a particularly accurate marker of what's good. The same way that popularity is not a particularly good marker of what's good. The same way any one person is not a particularly good marker of what's good. Because some of it's taste, some of it's habit, some of it's just style. Like, I I like to look at award shows just to keep my blood pressure from rising too much. I (laughs) I like to look at them as... Essentially employee promotion ceremonies, you know, like the supporting actors that everybody uh, likes uh, that are, are have been around for a while. Maybe they get an award and it means they get to move up to lead. And if they've been lead <laughs> for a while and people like them, then they, they get an award as lead actor. And, you know, there's a reason why Scorsese didn't win uh, an Oscar until 2006, even though he'd made a lot of great films prior to that. There's a reason why Al Pacino won for Scent of a Woman as opposed to the four or five films that he could have won for prior to that. And a lot of times it's it's just a question of it's your time. Like it's not that particular work. It's just all right. You've been around. We like you. Here's an award, and yeah, or, and, and you get an extra five million dollars. Or this is kind of a, a dead year. And honestly, yeah. like oh, everyone is sort of a equally unlikely winner. So let's you know roll the dice. Like Jeff whoever. Bridges was great in Crazy Heart, but he didn't win that Oscar for Crazy Heart. No. He won it for being Jeff Bridges. Yeah, you know, and <laughs> that's fine. It's totally fine. <laughs> yeah. Don't care too much about award shows. They're fun, but they are not a barometer of anything other than what a select group of people want to perpetuate. Well, that's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Please let us know what you think of the show. You'll find us on Twitter at Vulture, and you can email us any questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com. Our producer is Henry Malofsky. Our senior producer is Laura Mayer. Andy Bowers is our executive producer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. 
And don't forget to leave us a comment or rating wherever you subscribe. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Margaret Lyons, and you can find me on Twitter at Marge in Charge. I'm Matt Zoller Seitz on Twitter as Matt Zoller Seitz. You can catch us all here again next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>